For some of us, it's one of the more dreaded times of the year. It's tax time. Um, the W-2s, the 1099s, all those little documents have started rolling in, and about this time, most everybody should have all of their tax documents. Um, some of us in this room probably have like real simple ta taxes to, to turn in, and you're done already, right? Some are done, know what you're getting back, and others of us are nowhere near done and are for sure, sure know that we're not going to get anything back, right? And so um, it's, a dreaded, it's a dreaded time. I don't think I've ever met anyone who goes, man, I, I just enjoy paying taxes. It's just, you know, I feel like it's an excellent investment of my money. I just really believe in our government, and it's like, there's no, you know, like, I just think I, I cannot wait to write them this, this check. No, rather, um, we look at tax time, and, and, and we can kind of go, ugh, come on. This is, this, is, this is no good. You know, you start looking at your taxes, and it's like, all right, here's what I made. Here's my hourly rate, this is what I made, and this is what I paid. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I paid this much. And so then we go to the bank and we get our money, and then we go uh, to Walmart or King Supers, or if you're real highfalutin, Whole Foods, and you go in there and you, you spend your money, and then you're like, man, I gotta pay tax on this again. And so we've paid taxes once, now we just bought something, we pay taxes. So then we go get in our car. We get in our car, and we drive our car, and guess what? They tax us for driving that thing. So we, we, we bought it, we pay taxes on it. We drive it, we're going to pay taxes on it, right? You've got to register it every year. There's a tax there. You go put gas in it, guess what? There's a tax. You go buy tires, guess what? There's an extra tax because you're buying rubber, right? And then so you've got to even pay a tax to get rid of the tires. You know, it's like, here's the tax you to get rid of something. And so then you go, you drive, you drive your, your car home, and um, you go get in your house, and guess what? You paid house, you, you bought that house with your hard-earned money, and then you had to pay taxes on that house. But you don't pay taxes on that house once. You pay taxes on that house every year. And so every year, it's like, here's what you owe in property tax. And so they're, 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 they're taxing you for owning. And there's some people who have lived in Fort Collins a long time. You bought your house for $130,000. Bless you, right? Now it's worth $830,000. Oh, wow, there's, you know, like that's great equity. But the problem is you can't sell it because you'd have to move. And you can't afford that $800,000 you know, $800, house somewhere else. So you were paying taxes on a $130,000 house, but now you're paying taxes on an $830,000 house. Your taxes are more than your original payments were. And so, man, this is falling. Man, you guys just don't know yet. The first service, the first service is like, amen, hallelujah. You know, like, Lord, yeah, he's, he's preaching, let him preach. You guys are like, we're going to have to do this one day? <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to do this one day, and it's not going to be fun. You think like, oh, your little, your little W-2, bless its heart. Uh, <laughs> David, I see you. That's right, me and David, this is, this is like, this is an old man's club. Like, we would get around and gripe about uh, paying taxes. So today, in this text, we're going to talk about one of my greatest struggles in life. Uh, <laughs> we get to expose my sin before you as we open up into the Word. And so, no, seriously, that's true, but it's not what you think. And so I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Luke chapter 20. We're going to be in verses 19 through 44. And here is what I want you to know. Here's what I want us to walk away with today. Here's our big truth. 
We must submit to God's authority on earth so that we can experience his eternal glory in heaven. Read that again. We must submit to God's authority on earth so that we can experience his eternal glory in heaven. I just remind you as you're flipping to Luke chapter 20, where we've, where we've been. In Luke chapter 19, uh, Jesus has made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We're in the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, the events that we're going to read about today are like Tuesday, Wednesday events in his, his last week of life. And so he's had this triumphal entry. He, has, he weeps over Jerusalem, and then he goes in, and he cleanses the temple. There's these money changers and these guys that are breaking all these temple laws. And he goes in and he flips their tables, all, tables over, selling their products, and he, and he runs them out. And so they question his authority. They question Jesus' authority and they go, by what authority do you get to do this? They basically say to Jesus, who do you think you are? And so... After they uh, challenge Jesus' authority, he, he, he answers cleverly, shows them who he is, and then he tells them a parable. And it's the parable of the wicked tenants. And, and they figure out when he tells them this parable that, wait a second, he's saying we're wicked. He just called us wicked. And so that's where we will start. Luke chapter 20, starting in 19, we're going to read through 44. There's kind of three scenes that we're going to see uh, throughout this text today. So starting in verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that they had uh, told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere. That they might catch him in something he said. So as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they ask him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? He perceived their craftiness and he said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will this woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. 
but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord uh, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. He said to them, How can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of the Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? All right, so let's turn back up to 19 and let's begin to to take this apart. There's, Like I said, there's like three scenes that we can see here. Now, verse 19, the scribes and the chief priests. So we've got these different religious groups. Last week, it was the, the, we talked about the Sanhedrin. You've got Pharisees and Sadducees. You've got these different groups within them, these different little uh, sects, all kind of vying for power. So the scribes, like loggers and the chief priests, they heard what he had said. Uh, they had heard the parable of the wicked tenants, and they wanted to lay hands on him at the very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So we talked about this last week. They knew that like, if they just went straight to Jesus and they tried to kill Jesus, that there would be this insurrection against them and they would be overthrown. It's not like they're the Roman government. They're a weak people. And so uh, here's what they decided to do. It's because they feared the people. They thought, we've got to catch them. Right? We've, 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 got to, we've got to entrap him here. So they watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. And so the idea is we can't, we can't kill him, but if we can trip him up and we can get him to say something against the Roman government, something that's going to cause an insurrection, uh, something, something that's going to make it like he's an insurrectionist, think Barabbas. Barabbas, who they freed, uh, and they traded Jesus for, he was an insurrectionist. He was, he was causing people to rise up against the Roman government. So like, if we can, we can fool him in, in words, we can entrap him, and we can make people think this is what he's doing. And so this is what they tried. So, so they're, they're crafty in doing it, right? They, they pretended to be sincere. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly, and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. And so here's the question. Here's, here's, here's how we're going to catch them. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness. Here's my first big idea. When challenged by the authority of Jesus, we try to disqualify his teachings. When Jesus' authority... When we read God's word, and we get to something that we don't like, just like they had with the parable of the wicked tenants, our response is to figure out how to disqualify his teaching, how to disqualify Jesus, who, who, to challenge his authority. Over and over and over, just like they did last week, we go, by what authority? By what authority that do, do you have? What, what authority do you get to tell me who I can marry and who I can't marry? Right? What, by what authority do you get to tell me what I do in, in this realm or, or that realm? You know, Jesus, stay out of this, this part of my life. And so they wanted power. They, they were vi- vying for power. 
they, they wanted to keep their power, and Jesus threatened their power. So what did they do? The same thing that we try to do, and we just try to disqualify their teaching. This shows us, when we see, see their actions and how they, they were conniving, how much they hated Jesus' authority. They were willing to, to team up with their enemies to bring down their opponents. What you basically see, and it's not just this passage we're reading, but the next one with the Sadducees, is that you had people who really hated each other and had great disagreement with one another try to team up with one another to bring down Jesus. You've heard it, maybe you've heard it said, an enemy of my enemy is my friend. Um, you, you, this is like intersectionality kind of in our, in our culture. It's like, man, we're, we're going to, uh, the, the, progress, the progressive world that we live in, we kind of intersect everybody's cause in order to try to bring down, um, really, uh, Jesus in the Bible. I, I believe that's, that's what, is, what is happening. And so intersectionality says, all right, an enemy of my enemy is my friend. That the, the extreme left and the extreme right, if you think about them in a horseshoe, they're really not far from each other. And so they, they, they team up together, and they're teaming up together to bring down Jesus. This is, this is what, what they were doing. It would be like saying somebody on the radical progressive left and on the crazy conservative right, they're in cahoots together to bring down Jesus. Listen, they were trying to play political games so that they could win political prizes. And listen how they go about doing it. It's different, but I think it happens. They come to Jesus, and they use flattery. It's flattery. They, they say, oh, we know that you're a good teacher. We know that you teach without partiality. Uh, we, we, know, we know this. Listen, flattery is the opposite of gossip. Gossip says behind somebody's back what you wouldn't dare say to their face. Flattery says to their face what you wouldn't dare say behind their back. And so flattery is going, oh, you're so great, when behind their back you're going, oh, I can't stand them. Flattery is a sinful tool that we use to manipulate people. And this was, didn't just happen here, we see it throughout Scripture, and we see the Proverbs warn against flattery, in giving flattery in order to manipulate people, or being given over to flattery. There's a warning that you're not been given flattery in order to be manipulated. And this is what they, they did, and this is what they're going to learn real quick, is that you don't manipulate Jesus. There's something to learn here, right? Um, Jesus is omniscient. He is all-knowing. There is nothing that Jesus doesn't know. Like, he perceived their craftiness. I think, I think as believers, um, man, we're, we're to be taught a level of truth so that we can discern what is false. We're, we're to discern when, when, when we're being manipulated. Jesus was cheat code here. I mean, he knew what they were thinking. He knew what they were, were doing. And Jesus didn't come to play a political game. He came to redeem his people. He came to save his people from their sin. He came to save the very people who were trying to kill him. The very people who would hang him on a cross and yell. Some of the same people that yelled out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A week later are the people who were going, Crucify him, crucify him. And he came to save them. That's why he was there. He came to redeem his people. And so, here's something we can learn just in this, 
from this moment as we go in this text. As Christians, we don't have to live for these earthly prizes. We get to live for what's eternal. The the authority of Jesus isn't something that's just going to last merely on this earth, but we are to surrender what is eternal. He's eternal. Listen to verse 23. But he perceived their craftiness, and he said to them, Show me a denarius. And so he takes a denarius. A denarius would, be a, would have been a day's wages. It was a coin, a standard coin. It was a day's wages. Uh, it had Caesar uh, engraved on it, by, which obviously broke one of the Ten Commandments, right? Having no graven images. In that, uh, on that coin, it, it spoke of in its inscription that Caesar was divine. So Caesar, Caesar being a god. So the Romans believed that whatever, whoever was the, the Caesar was as if they were, were God. And so he holds it up. He says, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it, does it have? Well, obviously they had to say Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. They were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he had said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. So he, he outmaneuvers them here. He doesn't, he doesn't put down Caesar. He just says this thing about Caesar's authority. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And, and, and that's where we get stuck. We read this passage and we think about it. Okay, we must pay taxes. We must submit to our government. That's kind of where we think. But the second thing he says is actually much, much bigger than the first. Right? Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but render to God what is God's. So here's the next big idea that I want you to see is that Jesus has more authority than any earthly leader. Jesus has more authority than any earthly leader. Caesar never had uh, any authority uh, over anything that is eternal. The only authority he had was over his little Roman empire that would implode on itself. Jesus' authority was, was, was not just going to be in this moment, this unfolding thing that would happen in Jerusalem, but he has authority over the very cosmos. He's the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the one who spoke all things into being. The only reason Caesar has any authority is because God let him have it. And so when he says this, render to Caesar what is Caesar and render to God's what is God's, I have to ask you the question, which is harder? Is it harder to render to Caesar what is Caesar's? Romans 13 is very clear. By the way, this is the only place we get in Scripture that we should submit to the uh, worldly governments. Romans 13 is is very clear. Uh, You read Romans 13 that we should submit to our governing authorities. But you go, wait a second, Zach, our government's corrupt. Yeah, our government is corrupt. I want you to know, like, that's not like maybe our government's corrupt. Our government's corrupt. The, the United States of America, our government, all three branches, there's corruption. State government, there's corruption. Local government, there's corruption. Every government that has ever existed, guess what there is? Corruption. Why? Because sinful people are running it, right? And you can say, we can, we can vote people into office. I'm telling you this. We can vote good people into office that aren't corrupt. And guess what happens when they get in in power? It gets corrupted, right? There's sinfulness involved. Listen, I just came back from a third world country. Uh, Not the most corrupt place I've ever been, but it's corrupt, right? 
There's, there's a, a level of, of corruption. And man, it, it plays in my favor, right? Plays in my favor. I, I, I could get out anything it, out of anything. I just had to pay a little bit. Just slide it under the rug, right? Not that I did that. I didn't get in any trouble. But you think I didn't do anything. I didn't slide anybody anything. I refused to pay bribes for my integrity. Um, but there's levels of corruption, right? And so you're going, I, I have a hard time submitting to that. I, I, I mean, look at our government. Look at, the, look at the mess it's in. Look at our president. Like, look at our options. Like, we're, we're coming into election year going, you know, it's like, which arm do you want to cut off? Right? Like, I think it's easy. I'm going to cut my left arm off because I need my right arm. I can't do anything with my left arm. You know, it's, it's like easy for me. But, man, it, it's not good. It's not good. But do we really have that hard of a time rendering to Caesar what Caesar's in comparison, right? Because here, here's the deal. We, we make our money. It comes out of our check, right? We go to the store. We, we pay it. We don't, most, the truth is most of us never even look at the receipt and go, 7.625% meal left. Like, we're, you know, we don't even think about it. We just, we just do it, right? The things come in the mail. You, I got to renew my tag so I don't get a ticket. We, we, just, we just do it. It's not the, not the same thing when Jesus says, render to God's what is God's. Because what do we render to God? It's our entire lives. What does he say? Earlier on in Luke, he said that you would, if anybody was going to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would lose their life for my sake is going to find it. Like there's a dailiness to deny oneself and following Christ that that we would render the to, to God the things that are God's it means we have to go okay if I'm going to deny myself what we see in the New Testament is everything I have is God's when the rich young ruler a- approaches Jesus just a few weeks ago and he says what must I do to be saved and and what does Jesus say to him sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me when Jesus invites us to follow him, there's this radical taking off the things of the world and following Jesus. It's being unloosed, unbound from the things of the world and being open-handed with the things that we have that are God's. If we, if we looked at, look at the book of, book of Acts, um, what do we see in the, in the, in the early church, right? Look, Acts chapter 2, 42. Like they're together. They have all things in common, right? They're they're in the word, they're being taught the word, they're loving the teaching of the word, they're worshiping together, right? They're, they're in it, but if somebody had a need, what did they do? Whatever it took to figure out how to meet the need. Oh, you've got a need, let me go sell this so that I can help you meet your need. They were benevolent people. In the Old Testament, we see like this, this, that, that tithing was, was necessary, um, that if, if you had 10 Sheep, you took your first sheep, your best sheep, and you sacrificed that sheep. You, it, it, that sheep was killed. And so you, know, you had ten, now you have nine. This is an Old Testament law. I believe, it's, I believe when we come to the New Testament, it's, it's still a principle. That we still give of our first fruits. That we still sacrificially give. You know, I'm going to be honest with you. Experientially, like from, from the life that I've lived as a, as a Christian, this is what I've learned. I don't want to tithe. I don't want to tithe. I want to give more than a tithe. I, I want to be at a place in my life where I, I've given away 10%, sure. 
gladly. But I want to be able to give away more than 10%. I want to be give above and beyond 10%. I want to be able to be a uh, generous person. Here's what I've learned in, in my, my years of, of giving. Is that you can't outgive God. That, that no matter what I give, no matter how I seek to bless others, God turns around and blesses me more. That, that it, is, it is truly better to give than to receive. That God loves a cheerful giver. And that when, when I am not tied down to the things of this world, when I'm not holding on to the things of this world, I have a freedom about me to, to worship God and to give. And so, um, man, here, here's the deal. We give to Caesar out of duty. But we give to God out of delight. That, that as we delight in the, the, the Lord, as we steward our resources, that we steward it for him. That we render to God's the things that are God's. That it's not like paying taxes, that we just do it out of duty. That, that no, it's, it's, it's an excitement. There's a, there's a joy in it. How do I get to steward the things God has given me for his glory. Man, I, I've heard it said this way, that we, we steward our treasures, so like our, our money, our time, and our talents. That if we're, if we're thinking just like real generally, how do, we, how do we render to God the things that are God's? We have to ask the question, how do we render, how do, how do we give to God our treasures, our times, and our talents? You know, um, there, there comes an age in life to where it's easier, you're like you're, you're, you're working, you're successful, you've been successful at your work. It's easier to give somebody money than it is to give them your time. At my, at my last church, there was a lot of successful kind of middle, middle class people, live simple lives. And it was like, if I needed to raise money for something, no problem. If I needed somebody to serve, it took more effort. And so, I just ask you this question, are you rendering your time to God? Are you looking at your, your, your calendar? Are you only carving off very little slim blocks? Are you putting enough margin in your life to go, I'm going to be available for God to use me. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put time and I'm going to put effort into my life so that my time is, is God's time. That it's not, here, I'm going to have... Work time, me time, a little bit of Jesus time. It's going, all of my time is God's time, and I'm going to steward it for his glory. What about your talents? I would ask that of your talents. Have you rendered your talents? So the, the very gifts that God gave you, the very things that he made for you in your, in your very being, in your nature, when he created you in his image, when he saved you, he gifted you for work in the church, are you using those talents? Or are you using those talents rather for your glory? For, for, for your good and not the, the glory of God and the good of others. I'm going to move on. Verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees. Those who deny that there is a resurrection. And so, um, anybody remember the emo movement? Right? Th those were Sadducees, right? They were sad, you see. Um, I spared the first service that dad joke, but I figured, I figured there's enough people in here who remember what emos people were. Sadducees actually weren't emos, though kind of they were. 
Um, Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. So if you look at the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they actually had like this really big chasm in, in between their beliefs, right? One person believed that you've got this afterlife and resurrection after death and, and eternal life and uh, angels and all these things that existed in eternity. And the, the Sadducees just like believed that when you die, it's done. It's, it's over. There's, there's, there's no more, right? And so you can see there's like a pretty big chasm uh, between the two groups. And so the, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, uh, they've all tried to trick Jesus. Now it's the Sadducees turn to entrap them. And so uh, they've set their trap. Here it comes, he's going to walk into it. And so, oh, here's another th- important thing to note. The, the Sadducees only believed in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So um, the, the books, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all written by Moses, right? And so anything after that, they, they did not hold, hold up as the word of God. And so they only, they only saw the Torah as the word of God. And so... They said, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. Now, I think this is Deuteronomy chapter 25 is where we, we first see this. Um, it, God, God put this in place uh, really for the welfare of his people. Um, this isn't some like sort of weird, perverted sexual thing. This is like a really practical how do we keep that widow alive how do we keep this family flourishing how do we keep this property uh in this family well there the the widow will marry the, the the younger brother if he's not married and so i want you to think the book of ruth boaz and ruth uh boaz is the kinsman redeemer this is what this is right this is this is this principle from deuteronomy put into place He's, he's taking the wife for their welfare, right? Now, for us, we hear that, and it kind of freaks us out a little bit. Um, I, I, for sure, like, would not have wanted to marry my brother's wife, right? I'm like, no, nope, that's a deal breaker. I would have had a conversation with him beforehand, like, no, you need to pick a different one, bro. Uh, <laughs> like, try again. Uh, anyway, weird for us, not weird for them. But then the Sadducees got to go and make it weird. Right? And so they say, there were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and died without children. So there's that clause, the children. By the way, if they have children, guess whose responsibility it is to care for the widow? The sons, right? The children's, right? And so we we also see that in the, the New Testament. If there are no children, whose responsibility is it to take care of the widow? The church. Sometimes we forget that. We need to remember that. Um... It's the, it's the church, and so the church takes care of the widow. So here, here they are. He has no, 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 no son, right? He dies having no wife, no children. Um, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife that died, then a second, and then a third. And it goes all the way up to seven. Man, I would not want to marry her. Like after brother three, I'm thinking like, this isn't going to end well. <laughs> like what, what is it? This is not going to end well. Um, and so they put this hypothetical situation, all seven die. And so they say, Who's, whose wife is this going to be in the resurrection? For all seven had her as a wife. Now, Jesus isn't stuck at all 
Like this was supposed to be some sort of hard, hard question. And this is like a really easy question. And so uh, Jesus is careful in how he answers it, but this is a really easy answer. The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. Because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. And so he says, like, basically he's telling them, when you die, your marriage is over. Now you're given to a new life. And in that new life, in heaven, you're, after your resurrection, in eternity, you'll no longer be married anymore. So when we die, and those who believe, they go to heaven uh, you're, you're no longer married. You're now just like, just as, as an angel. You'll become an angel. You're actually more worthy uh, than the angels. But now you are in heaven with God. And you cannot die anymore. Right? You're, you're dead and now you're with Jesus. And so he says, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. And so again, remember, they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe any of the books after Moses, after the Torah that wrote them. You clearly see the resurrection in the Old Testament. Like, it, it is so clear in Isaiah, in the Psalms, there's these different writings in the Old Testament. But you don't necessarily look at the first five books of the Bible and see the resurrection clearly. So he shows them, Moses, what, that Moses was, was resurrected from the dead. But that the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And so he uses Moses' teaching to show them, like, God wouldn't have spoke. He said, Moses was mine. Moses was alive. No, Moses was his. Abraham was his. Isaac was his. David was his. You look at the, the, the Old, Old Testament, everything that you're going to read is going to show that they're alive in heaven with Jesus. He calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And so then some of the scribes answered, All right, teacher, you've spoken well. And they no longer dared to ask him any questions. Here's my next big idea. Is that the greatest relationships of this earth pale in comparison to an eternal relationship with Jesus. He's showing them that the things of this world pass away. They're, they're earthly things. They're going to be here and then they are going to be gone. Listen, I'm going to make this argument. You may disagree with me, but I think this is scriptural. That marriage is the greatest earthly institution. So if we look at earthly relationships, earthly institutions, that marriage was instituted by God as between one man and one woman, it's defined by God. We don't get to redefine it. We don't get to change it, but that's what it is. It's an institution created by God. Uh, one man, uh, one woman. I think it's the greatest earthly institution. Now, that being said, Paul said there's something greater than marriage. You know what that is? Being single. He did. Paul said it. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 7. You should go read it. There's, there's a, a, lot of, a lot of good there, but he's like, if you can't, be single. If you're burning your passions, you should be married. And so I'm going to make the argument that it, marriage is the thing that we hold up to be the greatest thing, and we dream about it, and we want it, right? And, you know, I had a bunch of little girls in here in the, fir the first service, you know, and I'm looking at them, and, like, 
They're longing for the day that they get married. They cannot wait to be married. I love all the young guys are like, yeah, uh-huh. Um, you know, we think like, it's going to be wonderful. Now, those of us who are married know that not all marriages are wonderful, right? We want, who, who wants a wonderful marriage? Everybody. No one gets married and goes, you know what, I think I want a, I want a crappy marriage. You know, that's my aspiration in life is to not have a good marriage. And marriages are one of these things that like when they're good, they are good, right? And when they are bad, it's hard. You know, we tell, we tell Jennifer and I do a lot of marriage counseling, and we just say marriage is hard, but it's worth it, right? It's hard, but it's worth it. And so marriage is this great earthly institution, and so we hold this up, and he, he's, they're, they're, he's using this. He's showing this, this institution. It, it is wonderful, but it just pales into comparison what it's going to be like to be with Jesus. Listen, I love my wife. I, I adore her. Um, I love going places with her. I love being with her. I love spending time with her. Um, I love getting away with her. Uh, I, you know, I, every week we go on some sort of lunch, lunch date or dinner, and I just, I, I love it. I, I love it. I'm, sometimes she probably gets tired of me falling behind her. I joke, and she, if she ever says she's leaving, I'm going to say, where are we going? You know, <laughs> like, oh, you want to leave me? Where are we going? You know, that's, that's how I feel about it. I read this passage, and I'm like, this makes me sad, right? When I die, I don't, I don't want to be sad. I want her to be my, my wife in heaven. She reads this passage, and she's like, hallelujah. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. It gets to end. I say that jokingly. She doesn't really believe that. Um, and there's sometimes that I think that way. All right? Let's be, be honest, right? But no matter, no matter wh- where you are in that, there's, there's this reality. That, that this, this marriage is a temporal thing. And you can have the greatest marriage Ever, and it will not be as good as a, a, a relationship with Jesus. It won't be. No matter of fact, here's just a, here's just a weird cheat code. That that the better your relationship with, is with Jesus, the better your relationship will be with your wife. And if you idolize your relationship with your spouse over your relationship with the Lord, guess what? Your relationship won't be. It won't be good. And there, there's, there is just a reality in that, that the closer that the two of you grow to God, that the closer the two of you will go grow together. But nonetheless, it will, it will just pale in comparison to our relationship with Jesus. And this is what Paul says in that same passage where he's, where he's talking about like it's better to be single than to be married because you can be devoted, more fully devoted to the Lord. He says this, And those who deal with the world as though it had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Meaning, uh, in, in, in the context, like the things in our relationships or whatever, they are going to pass away. It is, it is better to be with the Lord. It would be better to be resurrected with Christ than any earthly relationship. So we, we've already gone after our money, our possessions, and now he's coming to say that even the relationship with me is better than any earthly relationship so then he kind of comes after them they've come after him with questions now he turns and he says to them how can they say that christ is 
David's son. For David himself says in the book of Psalms, this is Psalm 110 that he's quoting, he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Here's the next big idea. That the greatest leaders of this earth pale in comparison to Jesus, the greatest, the, the greatest leader of the universe. Now, uh, just a little bit ago in, in Luke chapter 18, it's the story of the blind beggar. Remember, remember that story of the blind beggar sitting there at the city gate, and he hears this commotion. He hears, he hears something coming. He asks, like, hey, what's, what's that noise? And they told him, they said, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he had heard of Jesus of Nazareth. He knew of Jesus of Nazareth. And so he cries out. When he hears him, he cries out and he says, Son of David, have mercy on me. Remember what they did? They rebuked him. They're like, man, just, just shut up. You're not, you're not worthy to, to yell at Jesus. You're not worthy. They, they, they rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. This was like, this is an amazing thing that he said. This blind man saw what the people with, with eyesight around him could not see. That this was the Messiah. That Jesus was the son of David who had been prophesied in Scripture. But here, here he's throwing this curveball at him because it's now been said that he's the son of David. There's talk of him being the Messiah. And he's going to show them that I'm more than just the son of David. There's other people that have the same lineage as David. It's very, very clear Jesus was a son of David, meaning he, he had the lineage of, of David. He says, the, how could David say in, in, in Psalm, this is Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If David calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Think about this. There's a... There's a uh, a ruler say to a son, call his son Lord? No. Uh, he, the, the, the son would not become the ruler until the father died. Right? That, that's, that's how that would work. And he's going, how is it that um, David's saying that the Messiah coming is Lord, not just his son? And, and what he's showing us is that he's not just, not just a son of David, that he is the greatest ruler ever. That he is, he is Lord. He's, he's showing it his, his kingship, his lordship. How did that happen? Jesus was born a son of David. But he was resurrected Lord of all. It's in his resurrection. Here talking to these Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. He's showing them when I am resurrected it will be clear to all. That I am Lord. That I am king of kings and lord of lords. That the scripture says that at his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ Jesus is Lord. And so he's, he's come after our earthly possessions. He's, he's, come, he's come after our things. He's come after our relationships. He's come after our leaders. He is, he is coming and saying all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Come follow me. So here's my, my last big idea, is that surrender to Jesus and confess that he's Lord. This is what we call the gospel, the good news, is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
that while we rebelled against him, while we would have been the people that yelled, crucify him, crucify him, he died for us. He was crucified on the cross. Just, just in, in the days to come, the Roman government will get their hands on him. And the Jewish people will yell, crucify him, crucify him. He would have had nails driven into his hands. He would have hung from that cross. He would have had the crown of thorns put on his head. And he, uh, as they mocked him and yelled at him, he would have died and took his very last breath. Very normal thing in the day of the Roman government to crucify somebody. And they took Jesus off that cross and they put him in the grave. And what happens next is what makes Jesus Lord. That his dead body, laying there still and cold, came back to life. That the dead man got up and rose out of that grave Changing your future and my future and everybody's in eternity. If they will just simply confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in their heart that God raised his son from the dead. I tell you today, surrender to Jesus. Render to God the things that are God's. Render to Jesus today your life. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Father, we love you and we thank you for your, your death, your burial, and your resurrection. Father, we thank you that while we were still sinners that you died for us. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifices that you made on our behalf. That you paid the price that we could not pay. Lord, we know that we are going to fail over and over and over to render to God the things that are God's. And so, Father, we're going to fail at rendering to giving you the due that you deserve. And so, Lord, we thank you for the grace and mercy that you show us through your Son, Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be a, a, a group of followers, a, a church of true disciples that take up our cross daily and follow you. Lord, I pray that we would render our lives to you, that we would surrender, that we would say that everything we have, every bit of earthly material thing that we have, every bit of money that we have, every bit of time that we have, every opportunity that we have, every, every talent that you have given us, every little dot of it, we would surrender it and say, Father, it is yours. Lord, that you gave me this life and I'm going to live it for you and for your glory and your honor. Lord, that you would move and work in our lives and in our hearts that we would not live for ourselves. We would not live for the things of this world. But we live for you and for the life that is to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing a song of response.